Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's that time of year, March Madness. Whether your team's on the bubble or in the big dance, rooting for Houston or Purdue, Big East or Big 12, BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered with all the props, odds, promos, and parlays for this year's March Madness. Use our promo code BLEAVE50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Alright, let's welcome back into the Take It Easy podcast our friends Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo here on the Take It Easy podcast for what we've kind of turned into like our social science power hour here on the show. It seems to be the, the running theme that we've come to over the over the year or so of doing these podcasts. Uh, you, you know, guys hear- yeah. sorry, I just want to say, yeah, you know, this actually counts as a form of scholarship uh for me it, it will go on my cv so i i need to i need to put out there that uh, hi i'm joseph Cabot, associate professor of sociology with georgia southwestern state university uh, so that i can throw it <laughs> on my cv but, no but we get to talk about interesting social topics and uh it's funny in my profession as a professor um like being engaged in public discourse about these kinds of things is is kind of they call it sometimes public sociology and um so it's interesting how as much as you know uh, sports has been a hobby for me. It's interesting how it always still seems to kind of tie back professionally. So anyway. Right. Yeah. And this is something I've always been interested in sports because the I think it was in high school, the day I learned that sports are just a byproduct of society and you can take all of these lessons from sports and apply them to the broader context of the world. I was like, whoa, this is so cool because it's a new layer of sports that I didn't even realize I loved. And uh, I have a, uh, minor now in sociology so i have a basic level of college student <laughs> knowledge in social sciences so it's something that i'm definitely interested in so it's fun to do shows like this with a associate professor of sociology down at georgia South- southwestern college that voice you heard was joe camo he is the professor he also does the cardinal rule youtube channel he does mock draft mondays he has got a lot of cool stuff going on and You guys know Walter. He's a frequent friend of the show here. You can catch us on the Red Rain podcast. And you mentioned I mentioned that both of them are Arizona Cardinals people. So what a prevalent topic we have today about coaching hiring processes in the NFL. And this last coaching hiring search has been interesting for a bunch of reasons. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about the Cardinals getting turned down by multiple defensive coordinators and Sean Payton leveraging the organization. And then Sean Payton being the second option for the Denver Broncos, despite the fact that he's a future hall of fame head coach. There's so many interesting layers to this and I'll turn it over to you guys first to talk about the Cardinals side of it. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that two years ago, it was after the, Uh, Kansas City and Tampa Bay Super Bowl. I did a podcast where I was asking the question, why do these Super Bowl coordinators 
never end up getting hiring. And this was an interesting topic because obviously that was the year that uh, I believe four of the six coordinators in the Super Bowl were black head, uh, black coordinators. And obviously the NFL has had problems with hiring and uh, whether it's hiring people from minority backgrounds or hiring black coaches and promoting them through the system. Brian Flores filed a lawsuit on this basis last year. And what was interesting is that the average time frame for an NFL hire in the three years prior was about 11 days. And this year, Arizona took about 37 days to hire a coach. The Colts ended up taking over 30 days to hire a coach from the end of the season to when they made the hire. And other teams that no team hired faster than 18 days. And I thought that was an interesting shift because it didn't make sense why teams rushed so fast to make coaching hires, particularly because Kyle Shanahan, when he went to the Super Bowl with the Falcons, the the 49ers took over 40 days to make Shanahan their coach. And that was clearly a great hire. So that was something that I thought was interesting a couple of years ago. And two years later, it looks like the league has kind of recognized the same thing I did, which is doesn't really make sense to hire quickly and limit your pool of candidates beyond already limiting the pool of candidates that teams do. So Joe Camo, I will turn it over to you first. What are your thoughts about coaching hiring practices in the NFL as it relates to the Cardinals or otherwise now that all five coaching positions have been hired? You know, I think, you know, a lot of people, especially Cardinals fans, were really impatient and, you know, kind of uh, uh, frustrated about how long the search took, you know, and, you know, there was a lot of, you know, same old Cardinals and thought that the dragging of the heels was going to really be about them. Uh, you know, just trying to go cheap or whatever other, uh, you know, narratives were believed. And, you know, uh, we'll, as we get into this later, I will say there there are some fair criticisms of, of the Cardinals internal processes. But I, I did not feel like the, the the how long the coaching search took was problematic. Um, and, you know, for, for the Cardinals, one, one of the things that's important to note is they were the only team that had to hire a GM and a coach this cycle. Um, and they also were hosting the Super Bowl in their home city, which anyone, you know, who follows that kind of thing closely understands that the the owner of the host city team has a ton of responsibilities in terms of public appearances and things. So the fact that it took them that long to me was not a problem. Um, but there are some larger kinds of things going on league wide that do intersect with this. Um, you know, it, <clears throat> there was a memo sent out, a, you know, uh, sometime late last year, <laughs> excuse me, um, to NFL owners from the league. I'm sure you, you, you two remember this uh, reminding teams that how much organizations have spent on fired coaches and front office executives. It was uh, $800 million, you know, in terms of paying contracts on, people who had been fired and essentially the, the from all the reporting my understanding is that the intent of this memo was basically for the league to say to teams hey be more careful in your hiring process <laughs> you know so that you don't have to fire them um and i think a lot of fans maybe either didn't pay attention to the the, the reporting of this memo or forgot about it 
but you know, teams in general across the board for the most part took longer. You know, um, you know the 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 Panthers hired pretty quickly, but most for the most part teams took longer than than they had in the past. And I think it was part this, and I think it is also part um, some of the you know the reporting that came out about problematic hiring processes in relation to the 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 Rooney Rule. You know, there was a whole thing about. Um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, get the details wrong on this, uh, where Bill Belichick had tweeted Brian Flores, congratulations on the job with New York, but he was he was tweeting the wrong Brian. It should have been Brian Dable. And that tweet, or not tweet, I'm sorry, text. A te- he texted him. And the text happened before, I think before the announcement, even before, maybe before Flores' interview. It, the, the the bottom line of it is the the timing of the texts gave a strong indication that the Giants had uh, uh, in had decided to hire Dable before doing their due process of interviewing you know the candidates from underrepresented groups uh, in accordance with the Rooney Rule. So you know that there was essentially kind of a little bit of a smoking gun of violation of that, and then you know, other histories of organizations just kind of having their guy and going through, you know, the motions of the re-roll. So I think between that memo and some of, and, and the fact that, you know, teams were very aware that um, from that last hiring cycle and the way some of those things went down, that there would be additional scrutiny on their, than their interview processes uh, to make sure that they were not attempting to circumvent uh, or do a dog and pony show <laughs> instead of actually engaging in Rooney rule type of interviews. Um, I think organizations just across the board were taking more, taking their time. Um, they did not want to be, they did not want to face sanctions for, 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 you know, shortcutting or, uh, or um, not following the protocols that were expected. Walter, do you have any thoughts about, the hiring process for the Cardinals or otherwise, or how perhaps the lawsuit from last year has adjusted hiring practices and that teams are taking longer and the league wants to place an emphasis on that. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not on a pitch count today, so. Okay. Well, boy, first let's start with the GM. Um, Word came out. After Michael Bidwell, you know, introduced. Well, let me have actually go back a step further. When Michael Bidwell had the press conference to fire Cliff Kingsbury, he said that um, he was, uh, you know, now looking for a GM and a head coach. And he sort of proudly announced that he had just interviewed Adrian Wilson and Quentin Harris for the uh, GM job. Of course, Wilson and Harris were um, co-interim uh, GMs after Steve Kime um, went um, out on uh, rehab. So, um, you know, there was that. No sooner did he say that than he said, "But we're going to cast a net far and wide." for both the GM spots and the uh, head coaching spot. So I'm sitting there thinking, boy, if I'm Adrian Wilson or, you know, Quentin Harris, I must be saying to myself, 
guess that interview didn't go too well. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I mean, you're sitting right there and now, but we're casting the net, which automatically said to me, um, we're, yeah, that Bidwell didn't like enough of what he heard or enough of what, you know, um, you know, they had in those two um, up and coming GM candidates, which is so baffling in certain senses that Michael Bidwell is one of five NFL owners on the diversity hiring practice committee of which he, he always brags that he's a part of. And so to kind of quickly, you know, say, well, we interviewed Harris and Wilson, um, but we're casting a, as far wide a net and my focus will be on the GM first. So that automatically said to me, well, we're not going to hire Wilson, who's in the Cardinals ring of honor, by the way, um, as one of the greatest players in the, in the history of the Arizona Cardinals. And it's one of the only players that helped the Cardinals um, reach a Super Bowl. Um, and it, it just, that in itself um, made me very uh, sort of, wary of what Bidwell was going to do. And I'm just going to finish out on the GM part and get back to you and Joe, um, and then I'll get back to the head coaching part of this. But here's where things got, you know, again, I mean, in a year of just um, atrocious bad PR hits against the Cardinals, when um, Bidwell announced Monty Ossenfort as GM, um, you know, the way that he talked about Austin for it was, that, you know, here is a guy who stood out amongst the others and, you know, and had the vision that we have and, we, you know, we hit it off big time. And at the end of the day, there was really no other stood out the way Monty Austin Fort did. And we're just so delighted to have him and this and that. And then, you know, Austin Fort coming philosophically aligned with the Patriots way and, you know, and spending some years with uh, Mike Vrabel in in Tennessee, and Austin Fort, and this and that. So, you know, from that standpoint, for a moment there, I was thinking, wow, okay. And then the immediate connection that came to mind was Brian Flores. I mean, particularly after Austin Fort's thing, organizationally, from the cafeteria staff to the maintenance crew to the laundry guys to, you know, the, the GM to the head coach to the coordinators. And I'm just thinking, oh, great. Oh, my gosh. Okay, this makes sense. Just, you know, um, hard to ignore and is, is very exciting to me because I'm a huge fan of Brian Flores as a head coach. thought he did a fabulous job in Miami and, you know, so – there was that connection and all excited about that. But just as every little bit of good news that comes in for the Cardinals um, is followed up by a snafu of sorts, we learned that Ian Cunningham, first assistant GM, who was, a, a, I had read before, he was kind of the darling of the diversity committee conference like a young up and coming black GM candidate who 
you know, and hit it off really well with the owners at this. And then, so, but then we learned that Cunningham had turned down the job. So it would have been a high, a minority hire. All right. So, you know, you're thinking, wow. And then, but from um, the Phoenix crew uh, at the combine that they learned, Johnny Venerable learned that um, the reason why we finally get the reason why Ian Cunningham didn't take the job was that uh, he was not contract offer, that it was low. He was getting lowballed, which is kind of an interesting social dynamic in itself is in that, you know, when you hire minorities, sometimes prices, because, you know, he ought to jump on whatever um, job opportunities they get. And to Ian Cunningham's credit was he wasn't going to get blowballed. So he turned down the Cardinals job. And so now for some reason why, you know, that, that uh, Ian Cunningham turned down the job. And so then when you learn that and then you juxtapose it the way Bidwell raved about Austin Fort and said he was really the guy that stood out, just came back as feeling so disingenuous and, you know, just kind of a, you know, head scratcher as to, you know, so he obviously Bidwell quickly shifted and went to Austin Fort. But the other thing is, in that situation was, and then I'm guys, but the other thing in that situation was, if I'm Adrian Wilson or Quentin Harris, what does Ian Cunningham have over us? And we've been in the building for, you know, numbers of years. And I know fans were clamoring and just a clean slate go outside of the organization. I, I posted this a while back on Twitter, and I, I really believe this. I mean, the notion that Adrian Wilson was just going to be a Steve Kime toady who's just going to come in and, you know, if he got the job with just times ways, I thought was just insulting because Adrian Wilson has always been his own man. Adrian Wilson is going to follow anyone. He's going to be his own man. So I thought that was an inaccurate um skip over Wilson. But there's the other thing is that so after interviewing Wilson and Harris, Bidwell's choice was a was a G, young GM of color, but you can't matching resumes. I mean, you know, Wilson or Harris, you're looking at that going like what the frick? You know, so and then, you know, we're talking about loyalties in the building and everything. What does this do to the relationships between Bidwell and the level of trust between Bidwell and Wilson and Harris? And then, of course, throughout this whole debacle of a, of a you know, search, in my opinion, um, and which we know now the reason why they played it coy with was that in the back of his mind, Monty Ossenfort was wanted uh, Jonathan Gannon. And the interesting irony was that when Flores was asked back for, you know, first of all, they took two weeks to bring Flores full interviews before, 
in between that, which said to me, you know, what is going on there? And the minute that Flores leaves the building, and I was checking Twitter all day, hoping and hoping to see breaking news, Cardinals hired Brian Flores. Cardinals flying in Dan Quinn from the Cowboys for a second interview. And, uh, you know, um, which turned out to be, you know, I don't know what the conditions were there. I had heard from an insider that, that um, pro quo that, that Bidwell was looking for for a head coach was that to please um, retain Vance Joseph as defensive coordinator. Now, if you're a defensive guy, you're not going to retain the current defensive coordinator. I mean, that's just pure. Some guy would just take the job and, and do that. But so the, the gist was, was that Flores not only took two weeks to get him in the building for an interview, but the aftermath of that, no sooner he leaves the building, there's that announcement about Dan Quinn ending up in Minnesota for the DC job up there. Who was in town and the biggest buzz? Sean Payton. You know, and that whole ruse. All of them turned down the uh, Cardinals, basically. All of them turned down the Cardinals. Bidwell's telling everybody money was no object on Payton's contract. Well, now we learn that he's low-balled Ian Cunningham. Also, we've learned that Jonathan Gannon turned down more money from the Eagles to stay. So which is it? And also, I mean, during this season, we saw an incident where where they made a move at kicker and to save money, which wound up costing the Cardinals dearly in two games right in the middle of the season where they could have really – I mean, this whole cost-cutting measures that Goodwill does, and I know Joe will have a lot to say about this vis-a-vis now the, this damning report that come, came out from the NFLPA about the conditions the, in the... But it's just, a, just seemingly to me a series of contradictions and kind of, um, you know, uh, deception and poor communication um you know i i like the hire of gannon no doubt but but along the way and i want to get back to this when it's my turn next is that the repercussions of what bidwell has done in this cycle vis-a-vis the diversity hirings pretty much in one word whitewashing so, so um, which is very, very, you know, concerning to me. So I, I want to comment on a few things that you, you said, uh, Walter. I, 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 I would, I would agree with the the larger criticisms about, you know, Bidwell's financial approaches and how those have hamstrung a lot of these processes. And uh, I mean, to some degree, that is a function of being a team that, you know, isn't bankrolled by a large corporation. I'm not trying to say give them a total pass because I think I, I would never expect them to have the, be at the front of the list state of the art on everything compared to all these ownership groups that have that crazy Walmart money and things like that. But they should also find a way not to be at the bottom of the list, you know, be somewhere closer to the middle. But um, I, I don't. 
I don't look at the Adrian Wilson stuff the same way you do. And I'm a huge Adrian Wilson fan have been since he was a player. I love the way he's worked his way up through the organization and the front office. Uh, I, I really hope he has success, you know, w- with the Panthers where he's at now. Um, I don't think it was a situation where Bidwell interviewed them and was like, oh, well, yeah, that's they're They're not the guy. So now we're going to talk about spreading the net far and wide. I think Michael Bidwell, before he ever interviewed Harris or Wilson had already intended that that was going to be his approach and that how he would express it and frame it, that we're going to do a far to wide search. And I think Michael Bidwell for, for whatever good or bad you will say to him pays attention to public opinion and responds to it. That that could be a good or a bad thing. Now, sometimes the response is in turn in the form of actual change, but often it's just the responses in the form of things. He says PR type of spin. Um, but, you know, there was criticism of the there's been criticism of the fact that the Cardinals had not hired an external general manager since Buddy Ryan. And that is not hiring a real general manager. Right. That's uh, that's a coach and giving him the general manager job because that's what he wanted and to get him in the building. Um and I I do agree with that. It's not fair to say Adrian Wilson's just going to be like Steve Kime because I often cited that Jason Light came out. You know, obviously he had a background elsewhere, but he was under Steve Kime, went to Tampa Bay, and was his own man. And I definitely don't think it's fair to say someone's going to just be a clone of who they worked under, or to say they will not be ta- uh, capable or good at their job because the person they worked under wasn't. Um, that's just not how things work. But from a larger kind of organizational culture and and processes sort of perspective, you know, the, the Cardinals have been described as one of these, you know, as, as having this sort of peculiar way of doing business, much like the Brown family that owns the Bengals, you know, this, excuse me, small market family, sort of a team kind of identity. They do things their way and are, are kind of the, you know, their resistance to change is kind of the, the perspective or perception. And whether that's fair or not, I think there is something to be said that within an organization, you have processes and ways of doing things that if they are not challenged by someone who comes in from another place where they say, hey, we do things differently elsewhere. If you don't have someone come in who kind of reshape some of that once in a while, then you end up being the only team in the NFL that charges players for meals, you know, like the Cardinals. <laughs> so I think going outside the organization was absolutely the right move. I think it's unfortunate that Adrian Wilson and Quentin Harris were kind of the collateral damage in that, that they're, I like them both. And I think they'll have a good future, but I think going outside the organization was the right move. I think lowballing Ian Cunningham was a problem, right? Clearly. Um, so that there's, that criticism is absolutely fair. Um, you know, I, I think this, the points you make about how they kind of, you know, led Brian floors along are also fair that, that, you know, that they, if they, at minimum, they should have brought him in sooner for a second interview had, you know, better communication with him and that, but he decided to pull himself out of the search and that that's a fair criticism. Um, I do at the same, I mean, those, those criticisms are fair, but I still do think 
that at least in, in, in the good faith effort to try to really not just, you know, do what he did last time, grab the guy who looks like he might be the next or might be a, or like he had a cup of coffee with Sean McVay, like with Cliff Kingsbury or promoting the guy from within, because that's what we've done for generations. He saw that something wasn't working and said, we need to do something different and tried to do something different and stuck to his guns. There were some mistakes along the way, the financial stuff, undermined some of the efficacy of those processes, but the larger idea I still think was a move in the right direction. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be cleaned up nonetheless. Well, let me ask you a question because here's so much of what troubles me about Michael Bidwell's communication issues. How about from the get-go saying, like, you know, I think it's time for an organizational change. I think it's time to bring in a GM from who has other perspectives from other um, organizations come in here, and you know, I've got an idea of what our team-building plan is going to be. I want to see if I can find a GM. Then it's clear from the start, and, and he could even say, I, I have utmost respect for Adrian Wilson and Quentin Harris for the Cardinals. But at this time, organizationally, we need a change that will come from outside the building. And, um, you know, we need it now. Uh, rather than dangle them along, you know, and make them say, I mean, all, and the same presser where he fired Cliff. Oh, and we're interviewing Vance on Tuesday for the head coaching job. And, you know, and Vance has been very popular in this building. I mean, you know, that we're interviewing Vance and then they go and interview every possible defensive coordinator uh, type head coaching candidate under the sun. I mean, which part of that would have Vance not understood, except that Vance came and he had the job. And he also had the support of, of uh, Buda Baker and, and Zayvon Collins, apparently, you know, wanted, you know, made a pitch to Bidwell and Austin Ford to keep Vance as head coach, which is mind-boggling to me and that for a different time. But, you know, the way he just dangles people along, and held Vance hostage through this whole thing. I mean, thank goodness he got that, you know, the DC gig. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, the, it could have been so much, I think, more refreshing to hear a, what he's really thinking rather than disguised by, well, I'm interviewing the in-house guys, when in fact he has... From the start, it was in retrospect, he had no intention of hiring the in house. <laughs> and guys. I can and it answer. It just so happens they're all black. That was but, the point I was going to bring up, which is the reason he probably didn't come out and say it is because the optics of two in house black general manager candidates who have interviewed for other jobs in the past not getting a look at the Cardinals job when they had full intention of going outside the organization and ultimately hiring a white general manager, the optics of that would have been awful given the intense scrutiny on that organization because of 
one, the Brian Flores lawsuit, and two, they were the ones inviting Brian Flores in for what could be interpreted as token interviews, which is exactly the second point of the Brian Flores lawsuit, which is not only are black general manager candidates and black head coaching candidates not getting offers when they do get offered it is the worst of the worst jobs or in the case of ian cunningham like we now know at a significantly reduced salary and so coming out and outright saying we're going to look outside the organization and we thank adrian wilson and quentin harris for their time would have been optically bad for the cardinals even if the right decision for the organization i i think you know to respond to Uh, to, you know that 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 question like i i do think it's fair the criticisms about the you know lowballing ian cunningham are fair i think that's a big part of this problem you're right and you know i i look at like there's there's a you know i i work in higher ed and there's there's kind of sort of similar issues with hiring faculty of color that there there's not enough faculty of color especially at smaller universities like like where i work uh and part of the problem is that the, the, and it's not necessarily that they are offered less salary than than I am, but that institutions like mine don't offer good salaries, and it's just you know not going to be. It's harder, you know, to to you know to to hire those candidates when you're not offering. And I'm, that's not a shot my institution. It's it's across the board in higher ed that's an issue. But um, you know, with the you know with the Asian Wilson stuff and Quentin Harris stuff. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't have issue with, with, with how that was handled so much, you know, because if you don't interview them, think about not just how that's a bad look for the Cardinals. I would agree with that, but it's also a bad look for the candidates while they weren't even interviewed these internal candidates. Like, and it's like give interviewing Wilson and Harris, even if you're not hiring them, is helpful for them in their career advancement and development on one level. It's an interview that they get an, they get an experience doing an interview, right? Even if it feels like it's a mock interview, they get to interview for a GM. They get to ask, you know, do the presentations, ask questions. And I've just always believed that an interview, even if you don't get the job is a good experience to prepare you for the next interview where you do get the job. Um, So I think, Giving having letting them have that opportunity and experience is beneficial to them, and then they don't have to. At least they don't have to answer the question of, well, why weren't you even interviewed as a candidate for that job? You know, so I, I, I guess I have a little bit more generous take on that particular piece of it, um, but I do think you know the criticisms again about you know lowballing are are absolutely fair and absolutely problematic. Well, I'm concerned about people's feelings i mean you know let's say joe uh the director of humanities job comes and the the provost calls you and says hey joe you know we want to interview for this and um you're like oh thanks man yeah well just call let me know give me the day and time i'll be there have this rousing interview and you're you're pretty excited you know now weeks go by and you don't hear anything and but you do hear that they're interviewing you know they're casting a a net far and wide you know and, and but you know here's my point is it gets people's hopes up 
and when they're virtually false hopes. And that's what, I mean, look at this. I mean, how about this, this? Not only do they get passed over for the GM jobs, and hire an assistant GM from another building and don't promote Adrian Wilson or, or Harris to assistant GM in favor of a white guy from another building. I mean, what a diss. But if you're even in the picture, you're interviewed for the GM job and you can't even get the assistant GM job? I mean, what is going on? I mean, in the false hopes that, that come up from that, same thing. Let me let me extend it as one, one example. I mean, if you're not prepared to do what it takes to hire Sean Payton. You don't invite him in and make this whole circus out of it and get everybody, all the fans, huge hopes up and, oh my God, this could really happen and Payton's on you and, oh my goodness, and he's in the building and then all this secret cameras of him out in the parking lot and this and that. And, oh, wow, the Cardinals are really gonna gonna do it. And Bidwell the whole time had the ace up his sleeve to get it done. And he wouldn't. And you've got to know beforehand, which is that third number three pick. you got to know before. If you're bringing Sean Payton into the building to get everybody's hopes up, then you're putting your best foot forward. You're, if it means giving up the number three. But to... to and this is what Bidwell does. It's like always have to be on his timetable and on his terms. Is that it just makes him look so foolish to bring in a Sean Payton and just kind of try to already made it clear what they want. They're not interested in negotiating. You know, they know what they, they want. And if Bidwell's got the ace up his sleeve to get it done and he doesn't do it. And so again, I mean, not only hopes up high, Quentin Harris's hopes up high, Vance Joseph's hopes up high. Now the fans are all jumping in for joy, thinking that Sean Payton is going to come in and save the day, and that just passes by us, you know. And, you know, they're shy two days later on the Fox set. I mean, and the minute he got out of the building, he was tweeting that. No, he got along great with all the Broncos execs. Um, you know, it's just a charade. It was an absolute charade. All these people, and I said at the time, what this does is it creates such an injustice for the coach they end up do hiring because it's going to suffer from anticlimax. I mean, suddenly John Payton doesn't want this job. Dan Quinn did. Flores didn't want this job. All the guys with with past previous head coaching experience didn't want this job. But the Cardinals, you know, for whatever they were doing in this search, were like getting people's hopes up when, you know, all these guys. What does that do for the coach that they hire? Now, fortunately, and I'll say this, is Jonathan Gannon has a kind of, you know, it factor. I can see why Monty Austin Fort was was uh, very interested in him. So he Gannon created his own kind of buzz 
when he came in and I thought his press conference was, was outstanding. And, um, you know, it wasn't even a, I thought it might've been a show of his. It wasn't even a show. He was just talking from the ball. It was really great, but still, I mean, in comparison, if you, if you, you know, could poll the Cardinal fans on which hires they would have been most excited about, now, at the beginning of the search, I think Gannon would have been well down the list and in light of what sort of embarrassments occurred with all these guys turning Bigwell down. You know, it was just yeah. kind of anticlimactic and, um, you know, didn't create as much of a buzz as it could have. But to Grant staff and, you know, the way they're going about their business, the way that Gannon is, is um, you know, um, Joining forces with Kyler Murray, that's created some excitement. So at least we have that. And I'm very happy about that part of it. It, it would have taken a real somatic guy to do this. And, um, you know, particularly since Monty Austin Ford is, is uh, a pragmatist and he's really good. I mean, really sharp. Um, but he's not a, you know, um, particularly charismatic fake coach who is. Combined with Austin Ford, it's a really good commerce combination, I think. But um, imagine if it was someone hired who was just sort of less exciting. Um, you mean like Mike Kafka? Been right now. Yeah, I liked you know. Mike Kafka. Okay, so you just <laughs> watch your. I like yeah. him too. I'm just saying, <laughs> Mike. When I hear Mike Kafka, it doesn't necessarily yeah. get me excited. <laughs> So, uh, I liked him too, <laughs> Walter. You 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 asked if I was you know <laughs> out for the opportunity to interview for you know like a like a more director position, and then they hired an external. I mean, you know, and going comparing that to you know the Adrian Wilson and Quinn Harris. I just to me that that doesn't. I don't. I just don't. That to me doesn't resonate. It's if you're interviewing for a position and you know they're also going to interview external, which you know, the Cardinals candidates knew that you understand how this works. You're, you have, you're giving a chance. Uh, but if they're opening up to outside candidates, there's going to be a lot of really good candidates and, you know, no one's guaranteed me that job when they interview, if someone said, we want you to be the next person and then they hired someone else that's different, but that was never articulated. So I, I just think when you're, when, if I think Harris and Wilson understood very clear eyed that they're giving it, opportunity to interview but there's probably a good chance they'll hire from outside so to me i just i don't have a problem with with that piece of it um again like i said i think giving them the opportunity to interview ver it versus not giving them opportunity to interview was better for them in terms of that the practice but a lot of the things in terms of the 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 you know again what uh the the contracts that were offered were problematic but the sean payton thing i I don't fault Bidwell for taking a shot. And I also don't fault him for, for drawing a line with not being willing to give up as you called the ace in the hole. I don't think they ever should have given the third overall pick. I think they had an idea that it was going to take that the, the asking price was a first, but they, I think they probably were hoping to either give up their second round pick, which is, you know, just a few picks away from being a first and maybe a, a, a day three pick. And I think they were, they were banking on the idea that that the market for Sean Payton, like you know, that 
that there's no one else would pay that price. And Bidwell said this so much in interviews um, that they, they, you know, they, they went into it hoping to be able to negotiate and they weren't able to. And I don't know, I don't fault you for that because in this, in this, you know, in this profession, they do that all the time. You go into negotiations and you, you, you know, if you don't take the shot, you're definitely not going to get it. Um, I understand that the optics of that were kind of problematic, I, I, for me, I just don't have an issue with, with, with attempting to do that. And I'm also personally on board with not giving up the number three overall pick, but there that, you know, again, these are just, we all have our opinions on these and that's fair. Um, but I do think, you know, again, the, 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 maybe, you know, going towards that NFL PA report, you know, that, that in the end, in a super competitive field, Yes, there's going to be a candidate like Jonathan Grant, Gannon and Monty Austin for a good candidate. If I think that will say yes uh, to those situations because there's only so many of those jobs. But as an organization that consistently neglects those kinds of things, it still is a competitive disadvantage because you are going sometimes with your second or third choice. And in particular with free agency, it becomes a problem because then to get people to come here, you either have to go for people who are well past their prime, you know, like we saw with AJ green or players, you have to overpay, Um, you know, JJ Watt is a player. People often talk about as an example of a player who came to the Cardinals and it sort of validated like, wow, maybe there's something here worthwhile because JJ Watt is such a very respected, you know, player and, and, you know, he's a, he's a guy who's not going to go somewhere uh, just because, and, and I love JJ Watt and his character. And I'm so appreciative that I got to, you know, to cheer for him for a couple of years, but you know, a little over a year ago, I did a video about the Chandler Jones situation, looking at the contract and kind of in that process, I looked at comps um, pass rushers and edge rushers uh, of and how their contracts typically were structured and also looking at age at the time of the contract, you know, that, that looking at past rushers a little further in the career, what kind of contracts did they get? And in the process of, of researching that, one of the things that I, that stood out is JJ Watt, you know, his contract was around 14 million. He actually in terms of looking at comps for, you know, got versatile interior, sometimes outside pass rushers at his age, they actually paid his contract was, I don't want to say a total outlier, but higher than comps for players at his age. So the short way of saying that is some would say they overpaid to get JJ Watt. And and I don't, I don't like saying that because I love what he brought here as a leadership. And I think he was worth every penny in terms of the impact on the players that were here, but from a pure contract perspective, they, they, I think they had to pay more than the competition to get him here, and that's part of the reason he chose here. And that's what you have to do when people come to the building and you don't have a winning history yes. and your facilities are yes. substandard. That's what you have to do. And yes. you can an organization tur- can turn it around if they get the right coach and the right player because I, I use the Bengals as a comparison. They are also a peculiarly run organization with <laughs> limited funds. <laughs> but they got the right quarterback and they got a good coach and it turned it around, but it's a lot harder. I, and I'll, I'll give this, this comparison that I think will resonate with you, Walter, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass, I'll pass the baton. 
you and I are both educators. And one of the things that's often discussed is school funding um, and, you know, classroom facilities and, and, and things like this. And, and, you know, there's a huge disparity. Uh, there's a great book uh, by Jonathan Colzo called Savage Inequalities that was published a couple decades ago, but looks at these disparities, how, you know, v- school districts and, and lower income communities, you know, because of the, the disparities in funding that stems from uh property taxes uh, and local taxes are, you know, the schools in uh, poor communities are severely underfunded compared to schools in more affluent communities. And you see it in the facilities. And when people want to sort of buck back against, you know, the issue of school funding and, and school things like that, they often will say things, well, like, well, buildings don't teach people, teachers teach people. And this idea like, well, don't make excuses because of the facilities, it's the teachers that matter. But that to me, that that response is sort of tone deaf to the fact that, okay, yes, a transcendent teacher, the, oh, captain, my captain, inspirer of students can work with any situation, but that teacher gets burnt out in in poor situation, you know, unsubstandard facilities and resources. And when they don't have the materials they need, they get burnt out and they leave the teaching field often, or they often go somewhere where they will be more supported. And there might be a few that stick around, but a lot, but generally speaking, those lacking facilities absolutely have impacts on the, the ability of teachers to do their jobs so like, so there's a parallel to that, that, you know, yes, a great coach and, and general manager and the right quarterback can make it work in even the worst of situations, but you are structurally inherent and inherently at a competitive disadvantage. If you have uh, facilities and, and the way that you treat people in terms of the things you offer them in terms of resources and perks. If you are at the back end, like the Cardinals are, you are going to be at a disadvantage and it's going to be harder to get there. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah getting back to your, your, I'm glad you brought up Chandler Jones because, you know, over the years of <coughs> trying to cope with, what I consider to be very poor communication on Michael Bidwell's part. Um, you know, it's just the pattern is just really troubling to me. Chandler Jones, free agent. Oh, we'd love, we're going to try to re-sign Chandler. Tell him the fans. See, this is what Bidwell does. He wants the fans to think he's on the, you know, re, re-sign you know, like popular players like Patrick Peterson and and Chandler Jones. You know, the second that Bidwell went on the radio and said, "Oh, we're, I'm, you know, we want to re-sign Chandler Jones," and I'm going to turn. Uh, two minutes later on Twitter, Chandler Jones wrote, "LOL." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the players know that Bidwell's full of shit. He's often full of shit. He was full of shit about Peterson, too. He signed Pat. He's a core player, and, you know, we still think he's elite. They never even called him. I mean, and Pat Peterson does have a legitimate beef there. 
See, this is the thing. When you say things like, oh, we're, we're, we're interviewing Quentin. And we were interviewing Vance and, you know, Vance will be a part of the process. And when you say things that get people's hopes up, not only the pe person they're talking about, you know, um, but the fans that go with it, you know, you have all, um, you know, you're, you're um, basically teasing the fans. If what you're saying, you know, deep down inside, you're not going to do. And you don't have any intention of doing. And, you know, I mean, issue with is with with Bidwell. And I'm going to go back to last year. The way he handled the Kyler Murray situation was egregious. I mean, he should have nipped the whole thing in the bud from the start. He should have gotten with Kyler and said, Kyler, well, Mr. B, uh, you know, I... I want to thank you for drafting me and everything. I'm just not happy here in Arizona. I think that, you know, uh, if you, you know, I would really like it if you traded me. Um, say that, but that's the way I feel. I feel like I'll be, you know, better off in another organization. And, you know, hopefully you can get it as much for me as you can. Um, and at that point, if the player says, and that's the other thing, is when players say they want out, he holds them. He did that with Peterson. He did that with Jones. And now he did it with Kyler. I mean, you know, and the thing is, so you want to you want to know that, first of all. But then, because then you, you want to try to deal with the reality of that. And you could ask, listen, Kyler, why is it that you want, you know, let's try to figure this out. And Kyler could say all the reasons. One of them we, we knew went public. He said that he felt he was being scapegoated for the Rams playoff loss. Um, and that was sticking in his craw. Or, here's the thing with that is that he could have gone in there and, and diffused. It, instead, what he did is he allowed this drama and uncertainty to fester for months because his own timetable. And then once finally he caves in to a ridiculous degree. Now I know you predicted this contract, Joe, and I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to step on your toes, but you know, I've all along, I was just like numbers that you were throwing up there and, and everything else to a guy who hasn't yet finished a season strong. And has had injury issues. I mean, you want to see more after three years than to give him the second highest contract in NFL. Um, but that happens. But then what happens? The poison pill in the contract <laughs> is one of the most absurd things I have ever seen in any sport. At for any those time. for those who don't yes, know, we're talking about the crazy. the homework clause in the contract. The the homework what clause. What a joke! Oh, my God. So if you want to sabotage yourself, that's what you do. I mean, just when everyone could exhale for those who are so all summer long just clamoring. Who was that guy on Twitter? I'm in my of asking the Cardinals to, to sign Kyler Murray. I mean, you had all these fans twisting in the wind throughout this whole drama. And then you had a side of fans who, you know, were pro-Kyler, side of fans that were anti-Kyler, or the, except 
anti now. I mean, and you had all this twisting in the wind during a Super Bowl year where the Super Bowl's in your own own building, you know, and and Bibble's just allowing all this to happen and fester, bro. And he finally gives him the contract. And there, whatever air was in the balloon then just got popped when when the whole debacle of the the uh, homework clause. And man, I had to point out this. This is unbelievably telling too. People don't talk about this enough. You know, part of that contract too was them bribing Kyler with a $10.5 million incentive clause to train in the offseason in the Cardinals' own building. And now, you know, people, you know that, that hellhole that he has to go into and poor Kyler, rather, you know, train at Gold's Gym or something. You know, but, I mean, so the face of your franchise, you only have, not only had to pay him, the second highest contract in NFL building. Now you had to offer him $10.5 million incentives to do what he should be doing all along as the face of the franchise, being the galvanizer in the building that J.J. Watt was. I mean, J.J. Watt took that role, take that role. And I mean, it's just... The decision making on his part, on Bidwell's part, is just so. I mean, the the contract extensions for Cliff Kingsbury and and Steve Kime. I mean, if I knew better, I think you'd have to call in an intervention on this guy. Seriously. Well, so I mean, Walter, something is very uh, twisted. So one of the things very that I. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting ahead, about what you just brought up with the um, with the contracts is that I was I was shocked during this last coaching search that the Cardinals were the least desirable of the head coaching options. I mean, D'Amico Ryan's wouldn't come in for an interview. Dan Quinn turned down the right. job. Brian Flores pulled himself from the running. Uh, even the right. Texans' job, which I thought would have been worse, would have been there. And I don't know how right. much of that is performance because i was like well they have a star quarterback why wouldn't you want to at least consider that job and part of it might be the money situation because i don't know the exact numbers but i presume jonathan gannon is if not the lowest paid coach in the nfl one of the two or three lowest paid coaches currently in the nfl and money austin fort as a new general manager is probably one of the lowest paid general managers in the nfl and i wonder how much of the fact that right. Cliff Kingsbury is going to make thirty-seven million over the next six years, with depending on you know if he gets another job, there's right. contract changes there. I, I wonder how much of that played into it as well. And like Joe Camo brought up, <laughs> one JJ Watt didn't turn down money to come to Arizona. He took right. the highest offer on the table, and you know that was how he got there. As Emmett Smith did with the Cardinals right. and Kurt yeah. Warner did with the Cardinals and the Cardinals have a long history of guys retiring in Arizona to get one last contract. And yeah. um, the and the other part of that is the NFLPA report that had them as the worst team in the NFL to play for, except for team a team that has multiple congressional investigations open against them. <laughs> Yeah, right. you know, and th- yeah. I think there's definitely some things where where Michael Bidwell needs deserves a lot of criticism on some of those decisions, 
like you know i know i i i realize that i my view on this particular issue is in the minority amongst many fans i don't have a problem with the kyler contract in terms of what they paid him because when i did the video i did back in march where walter mentioned i predicted what his contract total value i was within like five million dollars of the total value um, oh you nailed it yeah so you know one of, one of my better calls um but when i when i was in when i was researching that one of the things i saw is just every year those contracts for quarterbacks go up and there are very few exceptions of a quarterback that takes under market value like the only exceptions i saw were ryan Tannehill, who was kind of a retread one-year wonder and I think Jimmy Garoppolo, who, when they signed his contract, he had been injured and hadn't really become that full-time starter, but every other quarterback from Jared Goff to Derek Carr to Matthew Stafford in the year they signed their contract, they were typically within a range of annual average annual compensation of about two to 3 million. And it was always every year that window reset the market and Kyler's amount was right on track with what you would expect a franchise quarterback to make in 2022. And three years from now, his contract's going to look like a bargain as long as he's still, you know, he's good as I think he's going to be because, you know, players are going to be making 60, 65 million. And that's just how it works. That's why Matthew Stafford's, I think it was 27 million this year they won the Super Bowl. You know, everyone talked about, wow, $27 million for Super Bowl winning quarterback in the era of $40 million contracts is a steal. But I did, I crunched the numbers. And when he signed his contract, that was the equivalent of Kyler's contract. Um, so I don't have a problem because, and the way things are now with quarterbacks is if you don't give them the extension the first year they're able to after the third year, that become there, then it becomes. Uh, you know, we're heading towards a path of of a, a parting of ways, like Baker Mayfield, right? And like with Lamar, it looks like it's going to be that way, but it might not. They might work it out, but it be but it becomes a big question. And if you try to push it down the road, then you end up having a Dak Prescott situation where they could have got him for cheaper, but they end up paying the next year's amount. Now, if you don't think Kyler's the guy then you need to move on from it. To me, it's like, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is the, the idea you could have offered him less doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You either pay the going rate or you, you go ahead and just try to get them to play for the last couple of years and then move on. I, for me, I'm glad they kept him around. I know a lot of people aren't, but the criticism where I think criticisms are absolutely justified are some of the decisions about what were put in there, right? The independent study clause, bad look, right? really problematic. Um, and some of the right. other things, you know, the, the thing about, you know, staying working out the facility, all those things are bad look. And Michael Bidwell is trying to micromanage those things. And it's hurting the, the whole thing with the time and Kingsbury extensions. Like I understand why he extended them because you don't want to create a lame duck situation where you've got someone with one year left on their deal who hasn't been extended because it, free agents and other people aren't going to want to come somewhere. If they feel like the coach or the GM are like going to be gone the next year. I think that is now, the the mistake was let was keeping them around that long or well hire I guess you could argue hiring Cliff in the first place you know going with a college coach which I think was the big problem not having NFL coaching experience and keeping Steve Kime around as long as he did they with with how badly things had gone 
So it was a mistake to sign them to, to keep them around. But I understand if you are keeping them around, why you had to extend them, if that makes sense. He just shouldn't have got to that point, I think. Well, in five years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, committing Fully guaranteed. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is that Bidwell could have waited on all that. And I don't I, think you could wait on Kyler. Uh, that's just my opinion. I think you either have to do it or move on. But isn't but the, that why they have a fifth-year option, Joe? I mean, that's if the – you're not sure – Yeah, that, but it doesn't I mean, work that way because if you if you sit to that point, who, well, who has it worked for that way that they've that stuck around with the organization? If you let it get to that point, well, the quarterback and their agent say, okay, we're not wanted here, and they look for the exit. <laughs> well, it's better to know conclusively, isn't it, than to – just go on a you know on a hunch that he is the guy for the team I, yes for the player no well the thing is right. you're going to sour that relationship so if he proves he's the guy you're either going to have to pay a crazy right. shit ton or they're going to already decide that i just i think you burn the bridge with but, the player if you do that i think the norm and the expectation right wasn't the I, relationship already soured no, I don't think it was. I, I think what had happened up to that point was the standard negotiation. There, I think there's a certain level of posturing and a, a kind of bit. This is just business that goes on in the negotiation process that I think is tolerated by all parties that like, listen, this, this is just, this isn't personal business. But I think if you get to the point where there is an expectation and this has become the expectation, even though it's not how the contract's structured, the expectation is if you draft a guy to be your franchise quarterback, you either believe in him and then you extend him after the third year. Or if you don't offer him an extension after the third year, you're Baker Mayfielding him and you don't believe him. And you, you know, with Baker Mayfield, he's become a cautionary tale. He still he still played, played injured for the team, and then didn't play well and got hurt worse. And then going through all that, then they cast him aside. And I think quarterbacks and their agents, they look at this stuff. So if you're a quarterback and you're you've been drafted and the team does not offer you an extension after your third year. You take that as a sign that you're not going to be the long-term answer. You're not wanted here. And it and it that burns the bridge, like more but, than the normal kind of negotiation stuff. But what if your quarterback doesn't want to be here? I I I I don't think he doesn't want to be here. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but he doesn't uh, he did sign the extension, but Walter has confirmed like they were talking to other teams about how a trade if they were preparing for the possibility of a trade yeah. last offseason, which I don't know if that's well, a sign that you don't want to be there or you're like keeping all your options open. You know, you don't scrub your socials. And I mean, first of all, what a cowardly act that was. Just <laughs> awful. I don't um, know. I think also, that's just how also, this generation well, does things. Look at the con. I, <laughs> you mean this I don't generation? Use that from anyone. <laughs> if you're the face of the franchise and act like a franchise quarterback, franchise quarterbacks don't resort to cowardly, cowardly tactics like that. So, is, oh, when that so, happened, okay, yeah. I had a source very close to the situation who told me conclusively, and then I heard this from another person that Kyler wanted to be traded to the Cowboys or the Broncos. And he had cased out those two. He had come fresh out of the, the uh, Pro Bowl where everyone was encouraging him to get out of Arizona. 
and he had he had played a week with his boy C.D. Lamb. They were dreaming of being together as cowboys, and you know, and then he had the Kyler also had the Broncos in mind because he loved their receivers, and they had a great. What Kyler was looking for was great defense first, and then great receivers alongside. Both those teams fit the criteria. What Kyler was fed up about is feeling like he had to score every time he touched the football because the defense kept giving the giving the score back almost virtually every time. I documented it in an article. It's just uncanny how often that happened, which I would say I, I would – in that situation, I do understand Kyler's frustration. I think it's – that's a tough scenario. I mean, Kurt Warner had to do the same thing when he was in Arizona. He had to outscore every opponent. God bless him. He nearly, you know, nearly did and took it all away. But it takes a certain person to be able to, to do that. And Kurt Warner was on in years and a veteran and was playing with house money. You know, a third-year quarterback put in that sort of scenario, it's really tough on. And so, I mean, there are things about Kyler's you know, um, uh, animosity toward the Cardinals that I do understand. I wish they were different, but I do understand. Now, there's other guys that say, well, no, I'm going to change this culture. We're going to, I'm going to be a part of the, the changes here. But there, I mean, so if you're the owner, I think you'd want to know right away what's going on and why and get a straight answer. And once the answer is I want out, you already have one foot out. I mean, if you ask out, you already have one foot out. How did it work out with Patrick Peterson having one foot out? He played his worst football as a Cardinal. How did it work out with Chandler Jones with one foot out? Those are two guys that scrubbed their socials and wanted out of the Cardinals. How did it work out with him his last year here, his last two years? When it comes to the oh, when it comes to the contract, could I bring up one case that supports your point, Walter, in terms of the like extending things out? Yeah. So Daniel Jones had an interesting case with the New York Giants where they played out the fifth year with a new coach and they might be headed towards an extension, but even if it's not with the Giants, Daniel Jones is headed towards a a very lucrative contract. The key difference there in like playing it out was Daniel Jones had at this point three bad seasons and one good season. And on the flip side, Kyler Murray had two good seasons and one bad season. And the the flip side of that is Kyler Murray before last year. It was no one was even close to saying Kyler Murray was Daniel Jones or Daniel Jones was Kyler Murray. And that's the point of leverage that Kyler Murray had in negotiation is like, I'm a two-time Pro Bowl quarterback who has put a and legitimate Pro Bowl quarterback who's put up top 10 passer rating numbers in these last two seasons and could make a reasonable case when you talk about the defense, when you talk about the offensive line, that the reason we were even in a position to play the Rams in the first round of the playoffs is because of me. I am the reason why we were in that position in large part. And so that point of negotiation was why similarly I was like, what choice do the Cardinals have other than to break off the relationship? Because I don't think he's going to play another game. They can have this back and forth in contract negotiations. Ultimately he's going to get, I mean, Joe right. nailed it within $5 million. And right. I think now Arizona's kind of in this place where it's like, well, 
we didn't get returns on investment immediately. Bidwell had to burn $50 million on Kyman uh, Kingsbury's contract extensions, trying to keep that together. And whether he has the money or not is another question. It's just the organizational mindset of we are going to cut costs because we have this sunken cost of the coach and the um, the general manager. We are going to do this regardless of whether we have the money or not. We're going to cut costs. And so that's the flip side of the Kyler Murray contract is the organization has made the decision to not continue to spend money at the levels they were originally committed to when they gave those contracts out in the first place. And I wonder if that explains part of the reason why the Cardinals job was not as desirable was that the organization said, we're going to cut costs in other places while already cutting costs in other places because the Players Association told us that they are (laughs) somehow worse than Dean Spanos's chargers and (laughs) and the team that reuses jock straps. And for those who don't know, the Cincinnati Bengals are confirmed to have reused jock straps in the 2000s. I'm not just saying that as a joke. That's a confirmed report that the Bengals reuse jock straps and cut funding from their scouting department because Eh, we'll just take guys from Ohio State. That's how we'll do our scouting department. The guys we can watch on national TV, that's who we'll draft. So, I mean, they've already cut costs in different places. It's clear that they're going to a cost-cutting method now as compared to where they were eight months ago. And this plays into a lot of the stuff around Kyler Murray and potential future dissatisfactions now that he is going to be in Arizona for, at the very least, the next two seasons. So I... Okay. The, the, just in a nutshell, the debate is really, really whether you believe Kyler Murray's a franchise quarterback or not. I haven't believed that because of certain things that I associate with a franchise quarterback. Like franchise quarterbacks don't not go in the refuse to go in the game with his with their teammates. They don't scrub their social medias. They don't um, cuss out a a head coach on national TV. Um, they behave like to a standard of decorum that is that uh, bespeaks a leader and not a, you know, a, a sort of self-absorbed whiner and finger pointer. So, and none of that's had to do with his innate God-given abilities to be a magician, a magician with the football. That part of it, I've never questioned and never will. But the other parts of that that go with it were just red flags to me all along. And I, I, I hate to say it because I want nobody wanted him to succeed more than I did. I mean, this is the first time we've ever really had a, a chance at a franchise quarterback who we drafted. And, you know, it was so much at stake. Now, I also understand that if you're paying for ability and everything, you know, your hope, it's like on a wish that, wow, maybe one season he will finish strong. Maybe one season he won't get hurt. Maybe one season his play won't deteriorate after he does get hurt. Maybe, 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 you know. But I think that's where the debate has always been is if, you know, just because you draft a guy number one doesn't mean he's he's going to be a franchise quarterback. We've seen that throughout the history of the NFL. Um, they've got to live up to that mark. And, you know, I, I'd like to ask Joe this question here. Is, 
in light of all that Kyler now has to overcome to get back, do you think he's got a chance in Arizona to do that? I think he's got a chance. I think he's going to. I, I have a very different opinion of Kyler than you, and I, we, I know we, we both kind of you know have expressed our, our views on him. I think a lot. I think a lot of the criticisms against him are 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 him in part being misunderstood. I think he is a little bit uh, introverted and a little bit uh, aloof, and he's not perfect. Um, but I think he's. I don't think he's the the people the person a lot of people have uh, kind of just made him out to be. I mean, you know. We talk about what a franchise quarterback does and doesn't do. There's a franchise quarterback named Aaron Rodgers who publicly throws his receivers under the bus to the media and, and has himself been quite difficult and prickly. And I I I I there I'm not saying Kyler is has everything you want right now in terms of his personality, but I don't think he's the person a lot of people have made him out to be. But I think he's going to be very good in this offense that that, that Petzing and Gannon are going to help construct for him. I think, um, I think a lot of the struggles last year were on the system and its inability to adjust to some adjustments or changes that happened in the defense. Without going too deep into it, defenses moved much more to, towards shell defenses that didn't blitz as much and took away the deep plays. And I think this offense had been so much of a hero ball backyard offense going for the deep plays that a defensive shift league wide that took that away. Uh, the, I think Cliff Kingsbury's system was not really capable of adjusting to that. And Kyler, a guy who the year before had been one of the best quarterbacks in the league on long throws, deep passes at like metrically was one of the most effective on deep passes got came to the bottom of the list. And I just don't think his skill all of a sudden went away. I think it was much more, but, and, and and the offensive line was an issue. I think he's going to thrive. I think they're going to, I look at what Cleveland did where Petsing is coming from. They created an offense that uh, a wide zone running offense that emphasized the running game and then put Baker Mayfield in some very favorable situations, using a lot of bootlegs to kind of get him out of the pocket and allow him to kind of see things moving. And I think they're going to construct an offense that may not be exactly like that, but like you look at how effective Mayfield, his best season was that last healthy season in that Browns offense. And he looked, he had a season much like Daniel Jones, super efficient, not a lot of turnovers, Right? Yeah. Not a ton of yards, but it was very efficient. And I think Kyler Murray has more tools to work with than Mayfield. And I think he's going to thrive in what they're going to create for him. And a large part of that is because they're going to take like Cliff's Cliff's offense really ended up having to get bailed out by Kyler's athleticism, which is not a sustainable way to run an offense. And I think what they're going to create now is a much more sustainable offense where Kyler doesn't have to be the hero in every play. He, you know, yeah. and I think, I think he's going to be, I think he's going to thrive in that situation. Boy, I sure hope you're right. And I'm pulling for every, you know, which way. And I'm, you know, I'm intrigued with Gannon's, uh, you know, calling Kyler a G and being <laughs> so high on him. And, you know, I, I, I'm very intrigued with that. And that's really, you know, a good way to try to get Kyler's spirits back. What concerns me is 
the trauma factor, what he's been through the last couple of years um, and coming back from trauma um, as, you know, is, is a bear. Um, and it's on so many different le levels. Um, the first thing he's got to straighten out is his disdain for the organization. Mm -hmm. um, he's got to somehow now we've, he's not alone. Obviously that NFLPA survey shows the disdain that the, that the whole entire team has for the way the team is run and operated. I don't know how anyone gets around that. And by the way, I just want to throw in a shout out for Cliff. I don't think Cliff had any chance. He had no OTAs with his, with, that's another thing. Franchise quarterbacks don't skip OTAs. Um, they shouldn't anyway. Um, some have, and I think it's a bad move. Brady did this past year. Look what happened to him. All right. So, um, you know, and that doesn't give you a chance, particularly in light of the fact that the last two OTAs were scratched due to COVID. So now you finally get a chance to get OTAs and get together as a team. That was a lost scenario, not only just Kyler, but the whole offensive line. But then come training camp, Kyler gets hurt. And so is Colt McCoy hurt. And so is half the offensive line. So again, you don't have reps going. You don't have, I mean, Cliff never had a chance to tweak the offense and install new wrinkles because he never had a full group on the field. And, you know, I mean, the other thing is, is I think, you know, Kyler went after Cliff because they always say you look. It's safer to go after the person you're most comfortable with. I don't think Kyler was yelling at Cliff as much as he was yelling at Bidwell in the organization for the way he's been treated. I mean, he's been the moles came out. Bidwell did nothing about that. Um, these moles that have been, you know, attacking Kyler's leadership, you know. It's made way more of a monster than, than it necessarily is. But now it's become such a stigma that Kyler's going to have to overcome that. I mean, outside, you live outside of Arizona, Joe, and so do I. People on the street, if you ask them about Kyler Murray, how would they react? I mean, up here, people just roll their eyes about him. Um, you know, what they see and what they, you know, have, have garnered. I mean, the press that he gets in the Boston Globe is always negative um, and has been since the whole um, scrubbing of the socials. Um, and so that's a lot. And then there's the weight of the contract. And that's one of the things I was arguing, too, is when you put too much too soon on someone to live up to a contract like that. You know, everyone right now is talking about the, you know, what's Lamar going to get? So they post up the, the con current contracts of quarterbacks. And who's number two up there behind Deshaun Watson? I mean, when people look at that, Deshaun Watson and Kyler Murray, do people look at that and go, oh, yeah, that was so deserved? <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, public perception has created a bit of a stigma that I hope and pray that Kyler's going to find, find a way to, to, to deal with and to overcome. But, you know, I, I recognize how much, and then of course you have the, the rehab 
and the you know the the trauma of that and co- overcoming that. So if you're right, Joe. I'm sending down a gift card to Southern Georgia. <laughs> right. I'm going to hail you as the Nostradamus. <laughs> well, here's hoping, NFL right? Gurus. I mean, I I'm with you. I want now that it's a done deal, I want everything about Kyler to work in Arizona and you know, and and then this whole new system would turn out to be perfect. And I share in your optimism about Drew Petzing's uh offense and like the possibilities. What I've heard already, though, is that Kyler is not warm and fuzzy about taking snaps over center, which Baker Mayfield made the transition into doing really well. And I, you assessed it really well that 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 uh, playoff year that he won against the Steelers. May, Mayfield was good in that yeah. system, but he's taken a ton of snaps, you know, in a run-heavy zone scheme blocking um, running attack being under centers has greater advantages, particularly for the bootlegs and waggles. You know, let me ask you this. Why do you think Kyler hasn't been a bootlegger and a waggler? Um, I think in his, I think it's, I think it's Cliff's offense. It's just not a big part of his offense. I I think that's what it is. Why was Cliff here? Here's a, Here's what I was asked you too. Why was Cliff doing it with Colt and with uh, um, Trace McSorley? Uh, and, and why, how is it- I? I mean, I I didn't see I I only I didn't see it happen a ton. It was maybe a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I I think part probably because they weren't. I think part of it was probably his. I don't think they had. I think he trusted Kyler didn't need those things to get outside that he could stay in. They could keep him in there and he could hit the eject button a little more capably than the other two. And I also think it was part at that point when they were playing and Kyler was, you know, uh, banged up the offensive line had deteriorated in terms of its health to the point where he couldn't, the, the protection was clearly a problem and they had to start that way. That makes sense. So, um, why then? Why then did uh, did finally we get a great quarterbacking game, the win in L.A. with with the most makeshift offensive line we had all year, with four starters out and Colt McCoy throwing dimes and putting up thirty one points. I mean, you, you know, you watch enough football to know that that there are always outlier games. You know, like a team, a bad team can have a really good game where players have a good game. So I, I don't think I that saw was... Drew Locke throw for 360 <laughs> right. yards against the Panthers. Right. So I, I, you know, they, they had a good game plan that particular game and they were adjusting, but I don't, I don't, I, I, I know where I know where I think I know where you're going is, did they not do that because Kyler doesn't want to, I don't think that's what it is. Um, or at least not that he, you know, in some sort of petulant way refused to, I do think it's, but, I, I think he probably doesn't. That's not his favorite thing to do. Kyler's not. He prefers the shotgun, and I think Cliff probably, in the from the perspective, okay, I'm going right. to create and make my offense with what my quarterback is more comfortable with. Right. That I think people right. have framed that as uh, catering to an immature person who pouted, right. and I don't see it that way. I think. Yep. 
you know, I think most coaches try to install the things that their quarterbacks like better. Um, so, you know, and I, you know, so it was, it's probably at least in part preference of the player, but I don't think in a, I'm going to take my ball and go home if you don't do this kind of a way. Um, and adding to your point, Joe, um, we know from the Jeremy Fowler report, like there just wasn't communication between Cliff and Kyler <laughs> after uh, week yeah. six. They just didn't really talk to each other. And the quarterback coach was the mediator between the two of yeah. them. And yeah. uh, that probably had something to do with it by the time the end of the season rolled around. Yeah. I, I, end of Kyler's you know, season. To, you know, Walter brought up some points about some of the issues that for Cliff or for Cliff. And I do think um, that. The, one of the biggest common denominators in a lot of these problems is was Steve Kime. Um, you talked about all the leaks of information. Right. It's interesting how quiet the building has gotten and how leaks are not coming out nearly like they used to since Kime moved on. Um, I think, and you know, there are people who um, I think there, there's a per, I think someone who I follow on Twitter who who follows the league pretty closely, you know, tweeted out at one point um, about how Cliff had a reputation for being someone who floated things out to the media to try to you know kind of get you know to create uh, leverage and to whatever. And I, I mean, I think a lot of the criticisms that we see in the media about Kyler, I think a lot of those stem from Steve Kime leaking stuff in the hopes that it would. Uh, undermine Kyler's leverage in the contracts that were coming up. I, wow. I, I, right. I think that's a lot of what was happening. He's like, well, if, if, if we can leak some things about questionable, this, that, and the other, maybe we can get a few <laughs> nickel and dime a little bit, you know, better position in this contract. And, you know, the, listen, I, I think Patrick Peterson has a legitimate gripe with Steve Kime. I also think he's been a little bit petty in how he's handled that. And that's, yeah. that those aren't mutually exclusive opinions. Um, but he's always kind of pointed back to Steve Kime and described, you know, snake in right. the grass. And I, I think that Steve Kime had that snake oil salesman kind of thing where he could, he, he was engaging in interviews and can seem likable in sh- in small spurts if you don't really get to watch closely right but i think behind the scenes he was that guy who when when he when he was trying to court you was the nicest guy and funny and engaging and then when you were on your way out he didn't have time for you or he was a little duplicitous and i think a lot of the issues in terms of interpersonal and, and people who are negative towards the Cardinals is a combination of the, 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 the spending stuff we see in that NFLPA report and the, the interpersonal stuff with Kime in the way that once you're out the door, all of a sudden he's a different person. And I also think from a um, roster building perspective, I agree that Cliff didn't really have a, a great sh- opportunity or chance to me, I look at that more in terms of the roster that he was given, you know, years of, of drafting that was not great. You know, they hit on some players, but even at that, like their strategy for positional value, you know, emphasizing inside linebackers and safeties and ignoring nearly almost completely ignoring cornerbacks and defensive linemen and offensive linemen. Um, and where, you know, I did a little bit of analysis of the draft where they draft different positions and compared it to 
what we saw out of the Patriots and Monty Austin's for its time there. And it's just some very drastic things that stand out, just weird roster construction. And then when you don't hit players in the draft, then you have to sign aging free agents and it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And like with a better roster, Cliff would probably still be the coach and would be competitive. I still think there are issues with his offense that make it predictable and limit his ceiling, especially if his playmakers are, if he, if he playmakers are injured or he doesn't have elite receivers, but I think he, you know, I do think Cliff is a better coach than a lot of people give him credit for. And Steve Kime on multiple fronts has really undermined, you know, undermined his ability to be successful here. That was really well said. And I, I concur with everything you said. I think that, reason why we're seeing him happier looking Kyler in the building now is the change in leadership. I think the animosity that built up there between Kyler and Kime um, and Bedwell to a certain degree, although Bedwell's trying to, you know, I think, you know, restate, you know, sort of reset their relationship with his support of Kyler. And, but it looks like Kyler is, morale is much better so i i'm really happy about that i think you nailed it thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube